already Thursday. Can you believe it? And what to say? Flying cars from China to the United Arab Emirates. The banner of the people. I'm not even sure I can mention that. Uh, Angela Hensbury passed away. Do you remember who she was? Same with uh, along the lines of Perry Mason. And um, the key to learning a language is being able to do the tasks that many people would simply consider to be too boring. Folks, it is Thursday, October 13th, 2022. I'm Stephen Sersky. Hope you guys are doing well and uh, taking it easy if you can, uh, wherever you are. I know Canadian Thanksgiving is now over and uh, you guys are back to work over there uh, for a couple of days already. I was actually uh, talking to some family and um, they said that they were almost done harvest. Another 100 acres or so of uh, canola uh, that they said was not uh, doing so well. Uh, given the, uh, the the terrible spring that Canada had. It was very dry for a little while, then it was very wet, and then the whole thing was just a complete sort of, I guess not a complete write-off, but uh, not so not so good at all. So uh, that's uh, how harvest is showing up in, uh, or is sort of ending up in, in Canada so far. And I know Australia, you guys are starting, well, you'd be doing what? Your harvest now, wouldn't it? Seeding doesn't start. Now, I worked uh, a seeding season and a harvest season for two different, three different farmers in uh, in Australia. Seed, uh, so the harvest season for grapes was like February, March, April sort of thing. Uh, maybe a bit later as well. Um, seeding for Australian wheat and barley and oats, that was... May, June, maybe into July, April, May, June, something like that. And then harvest. I'm trying to think, was I? No, 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 no. I skipped out on harvest. I actually went back to Canada for harvest, uh, which is September, October sort of thing. And uh, so I've done a couple harvests in Canada before. It's a big deal. It's uh, it's a lot of long hours. Uh, we're talking like that's the, those are the days when farmers and their their helpers are basically, if it's good weather, you go. There's no like, oh, well, we've already put in our eight hours or our nine hours. Let's take a break. It's like if the machinery is still working, if uh, people are still awake, and uh, you and if you have lights on your tractor, you basically keep on going. Um, I know a few farmers, like I know actually a, some people, they will go all night. With the, uh, I think that was the, one of the biggest changes that happened in modern agriculture was the introduction of lights on the combine, uh, on the on the harvester. That when they put lights on tractors, all of a sudden daylight didn't matter as much. But I'll tell you, <laughs> there is a huge difference between driving a tractor in daylight and driving a tractor with, you know, what thirty feet thirty foot visibility about 10 meters 12 meters visibility it's not so easy because although it does give you time to react to not hit the fence pole um it's still like you have to actually pay attention it's a lot more gripping you, you do have to pay attention a little bit more uh now also not just the headlights um, or floodlights as well uh the advent of gps has made things a lot easier and auto steer 
you still have to turn the tractor. <laughs> you can't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't do that just yet. Uh, but uh, certainly with um, <clears throat> doing, if you know, especially by harvest. So by harvest, according to, at least in theory, what farmers are doing these days, is that when they seed their fields, they create a GPS implant or a GPS map of what they've done, what they've seeded. They swap that over or they save it. So when the combine or the harvester goes over that, they know the boundaries. They know where uh, the crop should be, not just by looking at it, because that's obviously what you're doing. You know, oh, look at there's wheat, oh, there's there's oats and stuff like that. But like, where are the fence posts? Taking out a fence post might seem like it's not a big deal. The problem is, is that if you take out one fence, one fence post, it usually ruins the whole fence, and someone's got to go fix it because there might be cattle in that yard later on to graze, or, uh, I mean, other vehicles might feel the desire to enter into that property as well. So it's, uh, you, you can't just take a fence post and ignore it. And certainly, um, if you take out a fence post, it's best just to fess up to your boss and be like, yep, took out a fence post, because they've all done it. Uh, they, they've all done it. Everyone's done it. This is whether or not you actually admit to doing it. And then, uh, being able to help out fixing it as well. Not so easy to fix fence posts. <laughs> it does take some skill, but it is actually completely possible. Now, all that being said, uh, so Canadian Harvest is uh, winding up. What about these flying cars here in China? Now, I didn't mention this, but uh, was it last week? I guess I was uh, in San La Tour, San La Tune, and walked by the show boating, the showcase X-Pung uh, showroom and they had a flying car no i sorry it wasn't a flying car it was like actually some of the twitter comments were like if they keep on innovating they might invent the helicopter which is kind of true because this thing was like a car with drone propellers on it there were no wheels but there were like these massive propellers that could apparently fly this thing uh, only 30 minutes and like a, th oh, what was it? Was it, a th it wasn't a thousand feet. Maybe it was a thousand meters. It, was, it wasn't, it, it wasn't super high, which is good, but it also wasn't super long. And I remember talking to somebody going, why are they doing this? Like what, what's the, um, what's the impetus? What, what's sort of the, uh, the main reason why they're, they're looking at doing this sort of stuff. And she was like, well, the uh, reason would be probably for, you know, like a hot air balloon ride, basically. It's not, it's not exactly uh, practical just yet, although that's what you kind of assume that these flying cars would be, these flying taxis, is that they would be more practical than recreational, like a, a balloon, a hot air balloon you're not going to use for transport unless you live in certain locations where maybe that's the only transport you have. Same with like taking boats. Uh, I know in some parts of Canada they have um, boats uh, or uh, like a boat river transport uh, through the city. The problem is, in like most of Canada, it's frozen over most of the years. And unless those boats can go to hovercraft mode or whatever and, you know, make it warmer, it's kind of inconvenient to take a boat down the river. Likewise, with these, um, uh, these uh, flying cars, it, unless they are able to actually be commutable, move from point A to point B, 
usually point A being pickup location and point B being, you know, work location. If it's not that, then is there much of a point? Now, China developed it, Xpeng. It's a, it's a Chinese EV company. They, they've developed it. Um, they're one of the few companies that are working on it. Uh, there, there, there are a few, of, a few of them, but they're not deployed anyway, and I, anywhere. And I was thinking that China would actually be one of the, the forerunners of flying vehicles, particularly domestic flying vehicles, intercity, intracity, intracity flying vehicles. That me, meaning that from like Chaoyang District to Haidian District, you could take a flying taxi. You could skip out the entire hour-long um, traffic jam and instead just zip right over there in like 30 minutes or 20 minutes rather than waiting an hour or something. Like that. That's what I was thinking that this country would do. They have the infrastructure or they have the ability to build that infrastructure, which would be, if they did that, that would set this country miles ahead than the next country over. As it is, Xpeng has developed this, uh, I'm not sure if it's an EV, well, it has to be an EV, I guess. It's not a petrol flying vehicle, that's for sure. Um, this EV flying chopper, flying car, and they are demoing it in the United Arab Emirates. And I guess that's uh, sort of the place that has the money. Um, maybe there's a few, there's a bit of interest and maybe the, the uh, regulations are a little bit more lax compared to uh, some other places. I know these, pla- these things are not being demoed in Canada just yet. In the U.S., there's a huge push for them. But given the way that United States cities are laid out, it's almost like they have created a problem for themselves because those cities and the highway system were developed and meant for personal vehicles like uh, cars, vans, trucks, that sort of things, pickup trucks, not flying vehicles. The United States did not think futuristically about flying cars with good reason, but also they're kind of looking at it going now, you know, ah, how could we have known and how can you develop? Now, that being the case, to think that New York or Los Angeles or Seattle won't be in on the next curve of futuristic travel, of city travel, I think that's, uh, that's naive. I, I think New York will find a way to do it. Uh, it, they already have helicopters and everything. Now, it's, it's just whether or not they can do intercity or intra-city flying vehicles. And along uh, sort of what paths would they take? Where would they go? That's that's sort of the thing. Some events here in Beijing, uh, there, there's been some banners flying along. Those of you are, who are here probably understand, probably know. Um, timing is convenient that uh, in two days' time, there's an election here in Beijing. I don't think it's a surprise that there's such uh, unrest and uh, a little bit upsetness, upsetness uh, amongst the people, we the people, the people that populate these cities, uh, with how sort of uh, things are still being locked down, we can't travel, uh, and I'm, I'm seeing even more people, you know, saying that, you know, give it one more year and then they're out, I would actually like to meet some of the people who just landed, quarantine-free now, 
What's their timeline? What's their what's their impression now? That's what I'd like to know because as an expat, especially, well, okay, the people I have met aren't fresh expats. They've lived other places. I mean, they're used to the uh, expat life. Uh, they're used to being sort of uh, in the unknown. There's there's no real, you know, things could surprise them about the the country that they're living in, but the idea of being surprised by something doesn't phase them. Like they're not going to be like, "Oh my goodness, look at look at all the people in China." Like, yeah, okay, there's lots of people. Great, get over it. Move into the subway. How do you get into a subway that's packed full of people? Well, elbows and you push. Basically, that, that that's the attack. But I mean, if you're fresh off the boat from I don't know Canada, fresh off the airplane, you're like, "Oh well, no, I'll wait for the next train." The next sixteen trains are going to be the same way. If you don't get on this one, you're not moving. You know, so these types of people were they are experienced expats. Now, what is their impression so far? How is how is life treating them so far to date? We're going what mid October? It's not mid October already, is it? October thirteenth, six seven weeks since they've been, since they've entered the country since they've maybe even since they've been quarantine free in the country. What is their impression? Like, do they see themselves staying six months, seven months? That's usually your your cutoff as an expat of knowing whether or not you're going to stay any longer, renew your contract, stay in your apartment, or what have you, sort of thing. After seven months, that's when the um, the honeymoon period sort of ends, and after that, that becomes like the real sort of reaction, sort of a, almost a snapback. It doesn't have to be harsh. It doesn't have to be racist it doesn't have to be bad but after seven months that's usually when you're you you know deep down inside regardless of what you're saying to other people regardless of how you look you're like yes or no i will stay and some people can stay some people don't i i I remember being in south korea and people after a couple weeks just laughed they're like no i can't do it done no way six seven months even myself i was like after seven months i was like i'm not staying another year because I now know I can keep on moving, but that was me, fresh backpacker, fresh ESL teacher, free us, fresh sort of global traveler at that point. Nowadays, seven months, I mean, I've been, I've been in China for over seven years. <laughs> oh, just um, about to apply for another work permit for another work contract. I mean, so that sort of tells you where I am in terms of uh, my traveling years, sort of thing. But um, that's the. Um, I mean, I'd be interested to to hear what these uh, these new arrivals what what they think and what their impressions are so far. Sad news: Angela Lansbury passed away. Actually, I I was reading this last night as I was preparing for the show, and she passed away October eleventh. She's ninety six years old or something like that. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Angela Lansbury, she uh, played. Uh, what was her name, Jessica, on Murder, She Wrote. And Murder, She Wrote, both my mother and my grandmother loved. I mean, that was one of the things that sort of, I'm not sure if it was a bright spot in their days, given that they had a lot of children running around all over the place. Um, But uh, Angela Asbury, Murder, She Wrote, and Perry Mason were sort of your two big uh, detective shows back in the day. These predate NCIS and CSI and all that stuff, all the the really gruesome stuff. These were very congenial, very, um, you know, let's have a drink at the bar type of 
uh, crime solving. You know, I, I've got a good story for you. I'll keep, I'll spare you the details, but this is what happened. This is the idea of what happened. The, the, those, the good old days of um, murder, uh, of uh, murder mysteries, basically, very clean, good fun. So she passed away, and apparently she's been doing theater for the last, I guess, couple of years. I'm not sure if she's done any more TV, but she has popped up every now and then. Um, so sad to see that she she has passed away. Uh, I mean, do you guys remember these shows at all? I, mean, I, I think this is one of these things where uh, it's so long ago. That What was the other one? It was Murder, She Wrote, Perry Mason, and uh, is it Peter Selleck? Tom Selleck? What's that guy's name? Hawaii Five O. Was there another one that there was? It was very famous, like a police detective sort of uh, TV show, series. Uh, these were big in the uh, the eighties, uh, early nineties as well. They were still going on sixties and seventies. That was Perry Mason, so that was a little bit different. Always kind of neat to see these things sort of um, after all these years. Uh, will they do reboots? Oh, very good question. I mean, they, they did an interview with the Vampire Reboot, and that's only been, well, it's been 30 years since the uh, uh, the movie, and 40 years, 46 years from the um, uh, the book. Could they do a reboot of this one, uh, of uh, Murder, She Wrote, of Perry Mason? Good question. Perry Mason actually is, sort of sticks in my mind, because Ozzy Osbourne, he did a, a song called Perry Mason, which on the ride to school... I remember my brother and his friend playing that song, and we would get to school within the first two or three tracks. So it was like Perry Mason, and there was another one that was on that album. I can't remember, but it was, it was very quickly that we got to, to school. I'm not sure if that was safe, but that's how it was. Anyway, so she, uh, Angela Lansbury, has passed away uh, 96 years old. Can you imagine being an entertainer for 50, 60 years? Oh, well, kudos to you, uh, my lady. Kudos to you. So this uh, language learning thing, I was uh, reading up on the Delta stuff, and um, well, one of the uh, the comments, one of the the quotes I've, I pulled from is uh, some of the most successful language learners of multiple languages show that their uh, so-called unusual talent was also associated with a willingness to work hard at tasks that many would consider too boring or difficult, such as using word cards and study vocabulary. And I think immediately, of all the flashcards I've been going through, I did, I did one and a half sessions today with uh, flashcards uh, for Mandarin Chinese, which I'm learning. I'll tell you, I mean, it, it improves, but it's like reading the dictionary. Thankfully, this uh, this Anki Droid deck that I have right now has um, associated sentences. So it's not just the words, pinion, definition. It's words, pinion, definition, and a sentence to give it uh, context, which is, uh, it was different from HSK4, which it wasn't giving me the same thing. But even still, I mean, I'm not prepping to do the HSK5 test again just yet, but, you know, putting in the work, same with uh, even other Slavic languages, Russian, Ukrainian, putting in the time, learning the declensions, learning the conjugations, Latin, ancient Greek, same thing. I mean, a lot of inflected languages, a lot of European languages are inflected where the, the endings change depending on the 
utilization, the placement, the use within a sentence. So it, it kind of makes sense that if uh, someone is willing to put up with the so-called boredom, the boring activities, then they are going to succeed a lot more than those who don't. I, I, that's not just language learning, though. I mean, I, I'm looking at myself today. Oh, I was uh, working on episode number 34. I actually had to do a few more edits than I liked to do, than I wanted to do for this episode. It was just it was necessary given not just the length uh, of things, although that wasn't so much of an issue. It was uh, some of the content that was being discussed. I'm, like, I, I'm not sure if this would sort of... Um, go over too well it just doesn't it doesn't flow it doesn't give a very good experience and i think that's part of uh what i'm aiming for is that when people are listening to these things giving that experience and likewise with learning these languages you have and so with this the the analogy here being learning languages and editing episode number 34 is that you have to put up with some of these sort of boring aspects of the production in order to see the success and to be that sort of entity that people go, wow, you you were able to do that? How did you find the time? Well, you put in the time. You, you go for a walk in the morning, and in your morning walk, instead of listening to some music or the news or even calling home, you study your characters for 45 minutes on your walk. Uh, that's what it is. Same with, you know, podcasts. I mean, you editing podcasts, how do you find time to do a four-hour podcast? Well, you sit down, you do the podcast then you right after that you load all the the files up and then you spend your Thursday afternoon on a day off picking through uh, the, the files and then making sure that it actually transports properly moves properly from one program to the next so all right I'm gonna leave it there folks uh, busy day I know I was uh, doing a lot of uh, reading Chinese and podcast editing that was basically my entire day if you are working, on a language. All I can say, 10 minutes is better than no minutes. Put the time in, do your flashcards, write the conjugations, do your declensions. You'll be happier after the 10 minutes than if you didn't do it. Show notes, tracks, and vids up on my website, stevenstrisky.com. Thanks, folks, for listening. Have a good one. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. <laughs>